I just wasn't thinking. I'm not really prepared for rain and humidity and cyclones. And I was, I'm a little hot there. I was thinking about all the uh, fun, fabulous things that are going on. We got fire, uh, famine, flood. And I was like, you know what? We, no, we don't think that. We have a brand new sanctuary that, you know, we have been laboring on. And I don't know if you guys realize, I mean, Robin has really done a tremendous amount of work in trying to get this done. So, Robin, you deserve a nod. Uh, we've had some special laborers. A lot of the guys and people have been contributing work. But uh, this was definitely a labor of love. And I think we're just down to the last two projects, the stove in the kitchen and the facade across the street. So we're close to getting everything done that we had set our hearts and desires to the Lord and said, Lord, if it's at all possible, probably a bit ambitious to try to do seven major projects uh, in, in a 30 to 45 day period. But you know what, that's just the motivation that this staff has. And so thank you all for bearing with us. Um, good news too on the home front, as we decided to get some new chairs, another local church was in the process of buying a building and they were praying about with their elders whether or not they had enough money left to buy chairs or rent chairs. And uh, I told Robin, why don't we just post our chairs? Because guys probably hate moving them back and forth from the kitchen and see what happens. And they came out. And so it was like one guy, two guys, three guys. It was all their elders and their pastor. And I felt like I was being interviewed to sell chairs to them. But, uh, but it turns out they want all of our old chairs. So all 300 of our old chairs are going to go to another church. And they're going to keep on blessing. So... A little bit of money back in the pot, and, uh, and we're going to keep on going. So if you have any questions about anything, obviously feel free to let us know. But I, I think those are the last two things going on. And like I said, if you want to help or be involved with something, um, you can always fill out a connection card and let us know. Now, we have been working diligently to get through the book of Acts, and it's going to take us a while. But chapter 9 was one of those cram-packed full storytelling uh, sequences where we had kind of the conversion of Saul and now Saul has kind of become a major person, and yet here we are at the end of chapter 9, and Saul's going to get ready to go on his mission trip. So Paul, this name that we've now kind of gotten used to speaking about and so excited about finding out everything about him, is actually going to take a break. He's going to head down to uh, Tarsus, is uh, going to head down to his hometown, and he's going to begin a mission trip. And that's where the encourager, Barnabas, is going to join him, uh, and he's going to take a little break. And because he takes a little break and gets off scene for a while, it's going to create kind of an opportunity for peace because he was kind of the central focal point of the Jewish Sanhedrin and all their kind of attempts to stop everything. So as Paul kind of moves off scene, Peter is going to move back into scene. Now, because Peter and Paul are the ones we keep talking about over and over again, I, I was really considering something. How many of you think when you think of the book of Acts, you think of the, it's been total, like the, the, the name of the chapter Acts is the Acts of the First Church, right? That makes sense. A lot of people, I don't know, that's what I was kind of always told, it's the Acts of the First Church. But as we're continuing to study it, what I'm actually kind of, it's really kind of the Acts of Peter and Paul. And it's really kind of like a day-to-day -day life and kind of what's going on with them. And then I was just saying Peter and Paul all week long, and then I wanted to say Peter, Paul, and Mary. And then I got Peter, Paul, and Mary, and then I started watching videos from the 60s, and I was completely lost for about two hours this week. So this is the life of a pastor, right? I'm like, Lord, maybe we should retitle the book The Acts of Peter and Paul, because it's really just kind of like a snapshot of their lives and what's going on with them. Uh, and what's really exciting about it today is Peter's coming back on scene, and we're going to see like a period of time in Peter's life. And I, I know a lot of people still have this mystique about what actually happens in a pastor's life. 
And I think this is such a cool kind of a passage because it's so powerful and it's so overwhelming. But the truth of it is, it's just another day in the life of the pastor because the church is exploding. The church is trying to find its way out of this little seed pod to become the, you know, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so whatever it has to do, whatever it has to happen uh, is what's going to happen. So because he's leaving, like I said, because Saul, Paul, is now leaving the scene, the church, we found out last week in verse 31, that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace as it was being built up. And it continued to have fear of the Lord and comfort in the Holy Spirit, so it kept increasing. So as Paul kind of kind of moves off scene, he's going to return back in a couple of chapters Peter's going to come back in scene. Now, for those of you who are wondering what Peter's been doing, Peter has remained faithful, and Peter has remained in Jerusalem, and he's kind of continued to speak. But in case you forgot who Peter was, because it's been seven or eight chapters, remember, Peter was there from the very beginning. I want to say chapter 1, verse 15, when the very first 120 had somebody that they needed to talk to, someone needed to motivate them, someone needed to remind them that, okay, Judas was gone and they needed to kind of replace somebody, they had some work to do, who was it that was going to speak? It's Peter. Then at Pentecost in chapter 2, we saw the Spirit of God move, and all of a sudden a bunch of people started kind of speaking weird, and there was some, you know, babbling going on, and people were trying to figure it out, and the townspeople showed up, and the townspeople started making accusations that this body of people are all drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they're out of control. And who is it that begins this bold kind of representing and kind of postulating himself as the defender of the people? It's Peter. Okay? And then in chapter 3, we find out there's this paralyzed person who's well-known. He's been sitting in front of the temple for a long time, and all of a sudden there's an opportunity to heal him, and Peter's involved with that, and there's this opportunity to maybe gain a little bit of glory and let people know who he is and what he's all about. And yet you remember back in chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, when they came up to Peter and saw that he had healed someone, instead of an opportunity for glory, he said to them, why do you stare at us? By our own powers of goodness that we had made this man walk. It's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. It's the God of our fathers that has glorified his servant. Then he went on to talk to them directly about you handed over Jesus to be killed. You brought him before Pilate. You, 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 you. And yet God raised him from the dead. So it's the same Peter who's been on scene doing his same thing. He's the one that's getting ready to come back onto scene. And because of that, this opportunity to see what he actually does when he comes back on the scene is very powerful. Now, I've titled the message today, Miracles and Salvation, because miracles definitely play a role. So I want to ask you something. When I say the word miracles, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, some of us kind of come from a, a generation where we believe that there was a time and a place where an individual had the actual gift of healing. And definitely based on what these guys were doing, they could do some amazing things. But when it comes to that gift today, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical because I always feel like this. If we could find someone today who had the true gift of miraculous healing, wouldn't we send them to Children's Hospital? Right? Wouldn't we just get in the car, whoever the person is, who says, okay, this is great that God has given you this. Let's just go to Children's Hospital today. Let's do a quick interview before we go in, tell the staff and everything. Hi, my name is, you know, Jeff. I've been given the gift of miraculous healing from God, and I'm going to clear the hospital out today. Matter of fact, from here on out, I'm going to use the hospital as a resting place for me because all you have to do is just come to the foyer of Children's Hospital. It'll be my new place, and the kids will come in, and I pray for them, and then they go right straight out healed. Wouldn't that be awesome? 
But because the gift of healing doesn't work like that today, some people are just like, well, then there's no, you're saying, Pastor, there's no miracles? And I'm saying, you know, there's not that there's no miracles. It's just that God has never stopped being in the miraculous business, right? Now, I've told you this, and I want to keep reminding you, every salvation is a miracle. Every salvation, any conversion is a miracle of God. And based on the number of conversions that happen every day, God's in the miracle business nonstop. Right? But sometimes these miraculous healings, sometimes these opportunities to see God work are for a reason. So I'm going to try to give you some understanding. I'm going to try to give you some background so you can understand how do miracles play a role. They do. They're very significant. How did they play a role? How do they continue to play a role? And how should we go about approaching miracles today? So if you want to join with me in reading, uh, we are going to start in verse 32 in chapter 9. And we are going to follow Peter as he begins a day heading to uh, Lydda. And uh, I'll read with you. By the way, I got a little bit of background on Lydda. Lydda is nine miles southeast of Tel Aviv, 25 miles north of Joppa, excuse me, 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It is a, uh, it's a valley, and it's known for craftsmen that live in it, okay? It's also known as Lod in days of yore. So a couple thousand years ago, Lydda was also known as Lod. Starting in verse 32. Now, as Peter was traveling through all the regions, he also came down to the saints who lived at Lydda, and there he found a man named Arenas, who had been bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. So Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your own bed. And immediately he got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. When translated, it means Dorcas. Now, this woman was excelling in the acts of kindness and charity, which she did habitually. But it happened at the time that she became sick and died. And when they washed her body and laid it in an upstairs room. But since Lydda was near Joppa, which is Joppa's over on the coastline, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, do not delay and come to us. So Peter got ready and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him to the room upstairs. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas had used to make while she was with them. And Peter sent, out, sent them all out, and then he knelt down and he prayed. And he turned to the body and he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. And then he called the saints and the widows, and then he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed. And Peter stayed there in Joppa for days with a tanner named Simon. Now this story is chock full of stuff. So as we get ready to break it apart, I know when you hear something as super miraculous as that, you want to kind of just think of that. But stay with me as we go through the journey, because each part of this teaching has some really incredible stuff. And let's just start off with the opening, okay? Peter's traveling through all these different regions because people were all dispersed. Remember that from Saul's persecution, Saul who became Paul, his persecution was so great that it forced all the believers out of Jerusalem to all these surrounding areas. Now there's these little pods of new believers. And so there's this opportunity to go travel to each one of them and kind of build within them the, the process for the first church. So that's what Peter's doing. Peter is going to be focused on teaching the Jews and eventually the Gentiles, next chapter 10, we'll find out he's going to switch with the Gentiles. But Peter's focus is going to be internally on kind of teaching the Jews in and around Jerusalem. 
Saul now is going to move off scene, Paul. Paul's going to move off scene, and his focus will be those Jews and those believers outside of Israel. And actually, he's going to focus on that all the way to Rome with it once again focusing on Gentiles. I love the fact that it says when he came down to live that he came down to visit with the saints. Now, for those of us who don't live in New Orleans, okay, we are not familiar. Nobody in California is familiar with the term saints and calling us saints. I think we feel like a lot of things in California, but I doubt that most of us feel like saints. How many of you this morning feel like a saint? No. Okay. Here's the interesting thing about feeling like a saint. Not only do we not feel like a saint, but it's almost laughable, right? But here's an important part of this passage. Before we even get to how God's power works and how it works through regular jars of clay, one of the things I think that we get to overlook as believers, and God brings it to me, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm one to be distracted. I'm one to chase a parked car and get distracted. But I couldn't help but think, before I teach you anything today, let me just explain something to you. Who is it that ultimately has the final word in calling you, Max, a saint? Is it mankind that gets to say, well, Max is so good that we're going to call him a saint? God, okay? The problem is there's other churches, there's other faiths, there's other religions out there that have venerated individuals of their own volition, of their own choice, and through their leadership and through their hierarchy, they have determined that a said individual is now worthy of veneration. Now, veneration is a weird term. We don't, we're not using that every day. But basically, a venerated saint is someone that is prayed to. And within other faiths and other religions, there's venerated saints that make their church the reason why you go there. They actually will have a piece of a venerated saint or an article of a venerated saint in their building. And having said possession of a finger of Peter, seriously, it, it exists, makes that said building holy in their mind. Now, that seems so insane to me because when I tell you that we are saints, when I look around our beautiful building and think, there's, I mean, it's beautiful. We've done a really good job, right? But what makes this place holy? What makes this place holy is anywhere a venerated saint is, you're there, then God's presence is with you. But in the end, who makes us worthy of veneration? Nothing. No, none of us. I'm not worthy of veneration, neither are you. There's only one worthy of praise. No other gods before me. If you're praying to anyone else other than Jesus, exclusively church, I want to encourage you to realize something. That's not what it means. It means, saint means something. And I wrote down what it means because I want you to understand. It means an individual set apart by God for his plan and his purpose. An individual set apart for his plan and his purpose. So because of that, you are a saint because he says you're a saint. Now, the question is today, before I even get to the meat and potatoes of this passage, is do you feel like one? Because if you don't feel like one, then you're probably in good company. But the reality is when you go out there and you represent the word of God, you are one. And because of that empowerment that he's giving, giving to us, it's really important because when he talks about in this next verse, and he found them. You really think at any time we find things. You really think at any times stuff just randomly happens. You know, I'm a big fan of people saying the truth is there's nothing random in our life. I don't believe there's anything random in your life, and I don't believe there's anything random in my life. I believe that every single thing that happens is by the divine will and understanding of God. Now, that makes a big difference because if I'm approaching that as a saint, when I realize I'm the one that's going to have the opportunity to speak the name of Jesus in this situation, I have to make peace with it. 
And that's what Peter's doing. He's traveling from situation to situation. He's trying to think about all the time that he spent with Jesus. And when he spent time with Jesus, what did he see Jesus do? And why did Jesus do that? Because if he can do and emulate the same things and believe that Jesus would have him do that, it gives him an understanding and a power because the reality is this healing that he's about to perform, it was no big deal to him. He had seen Jesus do it many different times. Now, what is the purpose of a miracle? Let's see. I got a couple of different things about the purpose of a miracle. One of the first things a miracle does is it validates the power of Jesus, okay? Anytime you witness, observe, or hear about something that's truly miraculous in nature, it will validate that Jesus is above the actual means to understand how something occurred, okay? You can't explain how someone picks up a car. They say, well, we have these crazy energy inside of us and we do whatever. But there's a lot of things that we just don't understand about life and could and shouldn't be. But the reality is a true miracle. If it's a really true miracle, it validates that Jesus is in control of things and he can make anything happen at any given time for his glory. It also validates the individual who said, who is being said, I've been sent by Jesus, right? If someone says, uh, let's pray for something and I'm an apostle. By the way, there's I don't think there's any apostles left. I think the apostles are all a period of time and place. There's disciples. We're disciples. We're disciples following Christ, a follower of Christ, right? He's called us to be that. When we get uh, to a scene and we say, you know what, let me pray for this situation in Jesus' name. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask God for miraculous healing, but regardless of whether he heals or not, and we're going to talk about this very specifically in a few more minutes, regardless of whether God heals or not, you still have to evoke the power. You know, remember when Peter said, why do you ask us how we did this miracle? Do you not know who did the miracle? Let me make it perfectly clear. We did not do the miracle. Same thing for us. When we have the opportunity to pray, we need to clarify it's not us. Miracles are not a validation of us. They're a validation that God uses us to sometimes let the world know who he is. Additionally, is what can miracles do? Okay, they can do two things. For the non-believer, the miracle can, can lead them to faith. So when Jesus heals 10 leopards and one goes to the temple, we read the rest of the story, and what do we read about that? We read that only one of those received the miracle into what it was meant for, right? The others received it, but not into the value of what the miracle was intended. What about when a miracle happens for a believer? When a miracle happens for a believer, it's to strengthen your faith. It's to strengthen your resolve, okay? There's nothing in a miracle that's about you as an individual and what it makes you be seen in other people's eyes or anything. So be cautious. That's one of the tells that you can tell about a modern-day miracle worker. If any component of a modern-day miracle worker is somehow a reflection of them, then I would question them completely because it has no business doing it. It should always be a reflection of who it was meant for. The end goal of a miracle, obviously, would be salvation. Anytime you can get to salvation, that would be fabulous. But if not, if an individual's faith is then encouraged or strengthened by the miracle, then so be it. And this is something that Peter has seen. Peter has seen Jesus go, Peter has seen Jesus do, and as he does it time and time again, he realizes himself, I'm now going to have the same opportunity. I'm going to have the same opportunity. And this guy, Aeneas, has been waiting for eight years for something to happen. Did he do something wrong that he deserved? No, we find out in the Bible that sometimes God allows these things to happen for a reason. What is the reason? For this day, right? For this very day has God allowed this situation to happen so that he can have this man miraculously healed at a time and place when the church is growing and that those who get to see this miraculous healing can then be strengthened to the resolve to know that Jesus is 
the Messiah. So when he gets a chance to stand by him, who does he say heals him? Does he say, Aeneas, I heal you? Is there even the possibility that he would allow himself to be seen as any point involved with the healing? Absolutely not. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. That's another tell for you. If you see someone today talking about, I have the healing thing and I have the this and that, that's not the verbiage that someone who's using healing would speak of. You don't have any power. I don't have any power. We have what the Lord gives us. Amen? And because the Lord gives that to us, then any invoking of said power should also come with the ownership of whose power you're invoking. When someone says, let me pray for you, I have the power of healing. It sounds good, and I know your heart is, I want it. Okay? But sometimes the heart's greedy, and sometimes the heart wants things it shouldn't want. And you should just clarify with them, are you praying for me, or is the Lord praying for me? Because if you want to pray for me, I appreciate that, and off camera, or off scene, or off whatever you want to do, you can go do that. But if you're invoking the name of the Lord upon me, I would prefer that you say in the name of Jesus, be healed. Right? Because then whatever the situation is, i got to make peace with it. And church, let me just give you one thing that was burning clear to me this week. Every time I hear this whole thing, okay, I am someone who's in need of a miracle, right? I am, I am a living example of someone in need of a miracle. I had the chance to sit with a lady eight years ago at UCLA who was 10 times worse than me. I have a bad kidney, and my situation's not the f- most fabulous in the world, but I sat with an incredible lady ten, eight to 10 years ago at UCLA who was sitting in a room with three IV stands completely full of medicine and a tube swatch going into her chest that was a, the bundle was between seven and eight inches thick of tubes going in. Her heart was completely failed. I had the privilege of sitting at the end of her bed and speaking with her, as matter of fact as I am speaking with you today. And one of the things that became so overwhelming to me as I sat there and spoke with this lady was she had made total peace with the fact that she was probably never going to leave that room ever again. She'd even made peace with the fact that we were in La Quinta at the time at my former church. So from La Quinta to UCLA, she had no one with her. Okay? Her husband was trying to go back and forth. That's a pretty tough drive. And she was just kind of resolved to just sit in that room and make peace with the fact that somehow, some way, God was going to ask her to make peace with the fact that your heart is no longer viable and you're going to sit in this room until two things happen. You die or someone else dies. Now that, my friends, is a miracle that when you start praying for miracles, gets to be personal, right? And so I'm sitting with her, and I'm like, I won't say her name, and I was just like praying with her, and I'm like, this is crazy. Like, what are, we, what are we praying for? And she goes, be careful what you pray for, Jeff. I said, well, I want to just pray that God brings you a heart. And she's like, yeah, but someone has to die for me to live. And I said, but if you, if you don't get a heart, then you're going to die. And she said, then so be it. So is the will of God. And I learned so much from her sitting at that bedside. And during the four or five hours we sat there, because I'm going to drive all the way out there. I made it a day. There were so many uncomfortable times. She was so sick. But sure enough, as I'm sitting in there, the nurse comes in and says, sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And I thought, oh, no, this is not good. I looked at her and I said, I'll be back. And whatever happens, happens. She goes, I really appreciate you making the drive out. I left the room as the nurse said, stat everything needs to be in the next 10 minutes stat get this room cleaned get her prepped she's ready simultaneously in los angeles at that time a young mother had a very unfortunate car accident and she had passed 
and she had marked on her driver's license donor. And the opportunity existed because the other thing that's crazy about donating is blood type, and it was a match. And they were doing everything they could to prep my friend to go in and have this surgery. She had to realize with that last breath of oxygen they gave her, they were going to take her heart out of her body and place in her body another heart. I couldn't help but come back and talk to her in a couple of weeks when she healed. She was, she was so overwhelmed by the thought of someone giving such a tremendous gift. It was beyond fathomable for her. It was beyond miraculous for her. And I couldn't help but think as the pastor coming back into that situation, what was beyond fathomable to me was the family that said yes to allowing that heart to be passed on to someone else. For those of you who had never considered the power of a miracle, it's really easy to celebrate when a miracle goes our way, right? But what happens to Jody Tata Erickson, who's a young girl at a swimming hole, growing up with all the kids, doing what all the kids do at the swimming hole, just diving in and having a beautiful summer day? She dives in to realize that she's dove into a sandbank, and unfortunately, at her very young age, she snaps her spinal cord, and she never walks again. For those of you who don't know the Joni story that was part of the 80s and 90s growing up, this woman has dedicated her life in a wheelchair to explaining to people that sometimes it doesn't go the way you want. And even though everyone prayed for miraculous healing for a period of time, eventually Joni made peace with something. For God's glory is such an event taking place in my life. And who am I to say that from a wheelchair I can't serve my master? There's an even more profound one for those of you who never heard of Nick Vujicic. Nick is a gentleman that has one small left hand and one right appendage. He has no other body parts. He's simply a, just a talking torso with a head. And he is the most loving, kind, compassionate, fun fabulous human being on the planet earth and they literally set him on a pulpit like this and he speaks to people and to kids all over the world he's married he's viable and he has taken the absolute worst that life has to give and he said you know what lord i could pray and maybe people did pray but i could also just make peace with the fact that sometimes the greatest miracle in nick's life is written down in his things i give all honor and all glory to everything that I am, will be, and am talking to you about, to Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and Savior. We can't just pray for what we want. I am not just praying for what I want. I am praying for what the Lord wants and what the Lord's asking me to do with it. I know some of you in here today have major health issues, and very few people know about it. And I try to encourage you this morning with this. It's not always a miracle that we can pray for to say, Lord, remove it. Sometimes we have to say, Lord, use it. And so that's what he's trusting, that, okay, this is the situation right now. I'm in, I'm here, and there's a situation where I can heal him. I'm going to trust that if God wants me to heal him, I'm going to tell him to get up, and I'm going to tell him to go, and I'm going to tell him to be healed, and I'm going to tell him the name of who's healing him, and I'm going to leave the rest with God. I love the fact that he doesn't just heal him and say nothing. He tells him to get up and make his bed. Church, sometimes the first thing that we need to do when God does something for us is get back to the basics. 
You need to get up, you need to get going, and you need to make your bed. If you're finding yourself stuck in your bed and stuck in, your, in the same position every day, the first thing I would probably tell you to do is get up tomorrow, take a shower, make your bed, and get out there and see what the Lord has for you. And life doesn't stop for him. He's going to continue down the road, and then he's going to find out that simultaneously happening over in Joppa, um, I, I think I made one slide. Did I get it to you, Marcus? Any slides? I forgot to even ask you. I did get it. Happy do you. Uh, Lydda, right there, just to the left of Jerusalem, is about 10 to 12 miles from Joppa. Joppa is out there on the plain of Sharon, out there on the coast, between Joppa and Caesarea. Is a, uh, there's a path, if you, uh, I didn't put all the paths in there, but these, these trade routes. So there's a perfect trade route that goes from Jerusalem to Lydda, and from Lydda to Joppa, and from Joppa to Caesarea. And so when they call him and say, hey, can you come over here? We have another situation. I know you're healing and doing all that's over here, but we have someone who just passed who's a very well, very loved person, and it's only about 10 or 12 miles, which is about a one-day walk for him. So they tell him to come over, and th this is the reason why they want him to come. She's a deaconess. She's uh, working for widows. She's making clothing for them, and suddenly she has died. And you know that taking care of widows and taking care of them is the, probably one of the highest callings a church can do. Even today, we love to take care of our widows, take care of the orphans. And she has been making clothing and, and providing this opportunity, so, so much so that when she dies, they're willing to do whatever it takes to get help to them. Now, this is interesting to me. Now, if the body is laid in the ground, that's a problem for Jewish people because once a body has been laid in the ground, any contact with them in any way, shape, or form would make you ceremonially unclean, okay? If you're ceremonially unclean, that means you, for seven days, are set aside, and you can no longer enter into the temple. So dealing with people of death of any kind of way, shape, or form is a little bit taboo for them, and yet here's a situation where they know there's a small window before they clean her and kind of set her up, and all these different things. If you can get somebody there, maybe God can do something, uh, and it made me start wondering, what is this about death in the Bible that I'm missing out? Now, I think we all kind of have the Lazarus story down, right? Lazarus died, and Jesus didn't make it there on time, and then he shows up, and a couple of days later, he calls Lazarus forth. That's a pretty amazing one. But do you realize that there are multiple accounts in the Bible of people that died and were saved? Do all of you know that there's how many? One? You think there's more than one? Two? Three? Maybe there's four in the Bible? Would you believe Elijah raised someone from the dead? Elisha raised someone from the dead? Elisha's bones raised someone from the dead? They threw the person in dead, hit the bones, raised from the dead. Paul raised multiple people from the dead. Jesus, multiple people from the dead. If you actually go and cross-reference in the Bible, I would say it's 10 plus people. Is that shocking to you? It's shocking to me because it helps me understand something about Jesus that I hadn't thought about. It's not like when he was facing the cross, he was thinking it wasn't going to be painful. I'm pretty sure he knew how painful it was. Hey, if this cup can pass, right, let it pass. I see what's coming. But something that I didn't think about was there was probably a never a doubt in his mind that death was not the final answer. The pain issue was still, he was in full humanity, right? The, the fullness of his humanity allowed him to process the pain that was coming. But the divinity of seeing that he had been doing this and teaching this and showing this to the guys and they had been doing this, 
successfully was never an issue. And I also could never understand as a kid growing up that why we would have to learn this Greek, uh, the Hebrew name of this lady, Dorcas. Okay? I don't know about you, but it seemed to me like Dorcas was always a silly name. So I guess as a kid, I kind of made fun of the whole thing about being saved and being healed and all that stuff. And then I realized something, just like with Saul becoming Paul, the names are important because it's the humanity of who this person was. The reality was this lady was so well-loved, Tabitha. She was so well-loved that the other widows showed up. She's dead. She's gone. She's no longer here. They showed up to a man of God and pleaded their case. They believed that from the dead, this could happen. So this had definitely happened before. And they believed that if they showed enough you know, concern, maybe he would make consideration. Now, here's another interesting thing about if you show enough concern for something, maybe someone will be interested. Do you know that in the, in the times a couple of thousand years ago, if you didn't have anybody that would mourn, you could pay some people to come mourn. Interesting job that would be, right? But that's interesting because now I'm starting to think about another person who was healed in the Bible. Yes, I was running off rabbit trails again, and I was thinking about Jairus, right? The account of Jairus. He wanted his son to be healed. He didn't have any people to mourn for him, so he hired mourners. Why are the mourners so significant, Pastor Jeff? Well, that's what I was thinking. Why do people, what, is, what are we trying to establish? What we're trying to establish is the worldly concept of value. That's what we're trying to establish. See all the people mourning for the dead person? Mourning people equals value. Please make consideration for that soul. But how does the Lord see value? Does the Lord look at mourners and see value? So many things about the Bible in the early church are so confusing to me. It's like people just didn't have a clue of what was really important to Jesus. And maybe today we've incorporated some of those same things. Maybe part of the reason you don't feel like a saint is because you don't see value in your life. So why substantiate to the Lord to do something miraculous in you, to do something miraculous with you if you don't see value? And God knows you can't hire mourners you can't hire friends but isn't that what we're kind of doing with like tiktok and facebook and instagram aren't we trying to like hire and and manipulate people and kind of work people into being our followers like that's a weird term how many followers do you have Ooh. i still to this day have no understanding of why anyone would follow my instagram thing where all i do is post pictures of fish right it's like you want to follow me post a picture of a fish of course, my wife monitors that quite heavily, people. So if you're wondering why most of you who are not males are not allowed in, it's because I still don't understand. But anyways, back to this. He sends them there, and he tells them, here's what I want you to do. I will go 10 to 12 miles for this lady. I will go and do it. But when I get there, I want you to realize something. I'm not going to be swayed because of the mourners you have. But, but look at this scarf that she made me, and look at the sweater that she made me. She's a skilled deaconess. Look at all the... Th this has no bearing on her value, okay? The value of this situation is that God ordained it, right? I know you guys want to quote Romans 8.28, because we all do, right? God can use all things. 
But what you're missing there is if all things have been ordained by God and through his sovereign will and his understanding, he's using and allowing all things for such a time as this because he knew that right now in this moment there would be people gathered around Tabitha, a.k.a. Dorcas, who longed for life to return. And what he wanted to allow and the opportunity for Peter to come in there and heal this person was to remind them, if you follow Jesus the man of Nazareth, if you follow the carpenter from Bethlehem, this is a power that he has and he has given to us and he will give to you. And we tell them that hell will not prevail over your life, death will not prevail over your life, and that the sting of death has now been removed. Let me show it to you. And he prays. And she takes his hand. And he gets a chance to show them. And he gets a chance to explain to them That this woman from the community, this woman that was so important to you, is more important to Jesus. And it's a powerful, striking example, like Jairus' son, of who God is and what he does. I couldn't help but think about myself and think about my friend once again at the hospital with her heart. She's still alive, by the way. We still talk. We had a little falling out. Life happens. Something was said, something happened at the church, and for about two or three years, we went our separate ways. And then one day she called, and I can't help but think about something. You know, when you've seen a miracle with someone, when you've been part of a miracle with someone, there's a bonding that takes place. There's kind of this reminder that we know better, so we should probably do better, right? And the church is being grown through these miracles and the church is being solidified through these early believers and the church is understanding something that you know what we're all paralyzed here's what's really symbolic about these two events we're all paralyzed some of us have been paralyzed a lot longer than eight years and we're all waiting for the savior's touch we're all dead there's none righteous that's a pretty clear statement there's none righteous not one We're all dead equally as well. We're all waiting for the Savior's miraculous touch, who said, if you follow me, you will never have to fear that thing again. That you will say, death, where is your sting? I don't know about you, but one of the things that I'm learning in my situation in life right now is, I honestly don't care if it floods, famines, hurricanes, or tornadoes in the next 24 hours. That has no bearing on me. You know what I care about happens in the next 24 hours? If someone in this building or someone listening online doesn't know that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and leaves this message time and leaves this situational awareness to not make a profession of faith and that that individual would send eternity separated from God is the highest calling in our lives. Floods and famine, church, they're going to come again. Don't you remember what happened in 2000? Don't you remember all the little ants scurrying? Get your stuff, get your supplies. Water, we need flashlights, get rice and beans. Don't you remember what happened in 2001? There was a sale on rice and beans, right? Get toilet paper, guys still in toilet. I mean, I, must, I drive up and down Santa Ana home like 100 times a week. And I love the little kid lemonade vendors, but I'm not going to forget the little kid toilet paper vendors. Five bucks. That's right. A roll. Shame on us if we forget where we come from. Right? There's a high calling for miracles. 
There's a role for miracles, and there's an opportunity in our salvation for us to realize that even though when you look in the mirror you see flaws, he says, saint. And he says, I need you to go into that situation that you're currently living in and be my hands and feet and be the boots on the ground. And you're like, but I don't feel that sense of value. But it's not a feeling well, I need church to be more experiential. Boy, if the church is going somewhere right now to hell in a handbasket, it's that we need church to be more experiential. We have an entire generation of church goers right now being told, if church is not experiential, if you don't experience God at church, that we failed you. Church, let me tell you something. I'm not miraculous enough to make you experience anything. Right? I am too regular of a human being to make you experience anything. All I can give you is God's word. That experience is between you and your living heart and the living God to say, hey, look, it's coming alive today in you. If you walk out that door today and you think, you know what? I'm a saint and I need to reconcile this situation that I've been letting run amok for years. You know, I'm a saint and I need to go to the doctor tomorrow with my eight stints in my heart and tell him that whatever happens is perfectly fine with me because it is well with my soul. So do whatever you want. Oh, we have new information for you today. And that thing on your hand is cancerous, and you only have five weeks to left. You know what I tell them? I, that's five more weeks than I deserve. You know how many people have been wrong about what they've told me? I was told two to three years when I started, 17 years ago. It's 17 years later, I'm still working full time. I'm still the heaviest person in my dialysis center by at least 120 pounds, okay? I still have all my limbs, and my hair, and I can tell you this, there's no reason for me to complain about a flood or a famine or humidity. Because there's high callings in our life, church, and I found something in the miracle of my life, and that is that God said, no, I'm not going to heal you yet, but I'm still going to use it for my glory. And it's well with me. It wasn't well for Jairus, they paid for it, Dorcas, she didn't have to pay for anything. She had real friends, and he felt compassion, and he healed her. And the beautiful thing about healing someone is that they get a chance to come back to life, tell people maybe what they saw or whatever they experienced. But the reality for me is for all 10 of those people that got life restored, it was still waiting for them to do what? To go home one day. Because the Bible says it's been appointed to, for man to be born and man to die. And I can only come up with maybe two accounts in the Bible about people who didn't die. And so I've always been curious about how that's going to work out in the end. I think there's a couple of people that are going to be preaching in the, in the uh, millennial reign. Maybe those two have an opportunity to come back and do it. However it works out, may God have the glory in either way. I don't have to understand everything. I think there's some rhyme and reason in there, but I'm trusting him. So what does he do? He gives them a hand. He calls her back up. And he presents everybody to who? He presents her to the saints. The same people he identified in that first verse. Do you think they felt a little more saint-like now? If you actually saw someone raised from the dead, and by the way, this is a bizarre thing, but there's actually a church in America today, recently, that had a staff child pass. And they put that child on the stage and tried to pray for that child to come back to life for a prolonged period of time and wouldn't let it go because they told their entire church, we have the power to bring that child back. 
Church, they didn't bring that child back. And I just want to let you guys know something, that the world is full of deceit right now, and the world wants to tell you a lot of different things, but I don't think God ever wants to use our children and put them on display, because we already know from David and Bathsheba's thing that a child that passes without having the opportunity to make a profession of faith is with the Lord. Amen? Amen. It says it in the Bible. That's good enough for me. There's no reason to put that child on display in front of anybody for any reason. You make peace with that. Be careful about what's happening in the world. Between CG and between the world around you, they can make people say and do a lot of things. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Did you notice when they sent people to, to Peter, they sent two? Did you catch that? They sent them by two? Do you realize when the disciples were sent by Jesus, how did he send them? By two? Okay. Here's an interesting attribute that's often overlooked because it seems so insignificant. You're not supposed to take the accusation of one. But how many of you today are not only taking the accusation of one, but you're taking the accusation of one who's unknown to you? Part of the reason why you're supposed to travel as a two, part of the reason why Billy Graham was one of the most incredible men that ever walked the planet Earth and inspirational to me, inspirational, is because he made peace with the fact that he had stuff about God that he couldn't figure out, and he told him, I don't think I'm worthy to speak on your behalf because I'm, I have an issue with the Bible. And the Lord said, have your issue, go speak. He went and spoke that first night. People responded, and he made peace with the fact that he might have an issue for the rest of his life. And so he asked himself what he could do to hold himself accountable. He put a group of people around him, and he never went anywhere without them. Not even an elevator. It's been said he would not even step into an elevator without his crew. Why? Because in count, integrity counts for something, right? If you want to set yourself up for the accusation of one, then live your life as one. Part of the reason why the lone wolf mentality doesn't work for a believer is there's accountability in two. Men, women, find a partner, be in a relationship, be accountable to something because it avoids the whole taking accusations of one. If two come, situation's different. By the way, the animals came in two as well. So maybe there's something in there. That's all I'm saying. We don't have to be so creative. Maybe there's something in there. To this reward, what does it all say? The great effect, what is the ultimate great effect of a miracle and salvation? The great effect in verse 42 says, and it became known all over Joppa. So you remember where Joppa was on the coastline to the, to the northwest and that whole area above it towards Caesarea, that, that plain. All that entire area, it became known to them and they became followers of Christ. The whole point of anything miraculous, the whole point of this opportunity to raise somebody was so that the kingdom of God can grow. And so in your desire today, in your haste to try to see something miraculous or even pray for something miraculous, I just want to encourage you, the whole point that we would even pray or ask God to even make a consideration is so the kingdom of God can grow. We're not simply just trying to heal believers because believers have migraines or heart issues or kidney issues or health issues. The goal is not that we have this genie in a bottle and anytime our life gets rough or whatever, we simply go to God and we pray and we ask for God to do something miraculous in our, in our lives. That doesn't mean you can't talk to him. If you're talking to him without ceasing, you're going to be talking to him without it. But like Paul did, at some point in time, you got to make peace with the fact that God placed a thorn in his side 
and he asked for it to be removed, and then he asked for it to be removed, then he asked for it to be removed, and then he made peace with a thorn in his side. And what happened because of it? Well, you think maybe glaucoma, I told you this before, he couldn't write, he's got to write all these books of the Bible. I mean, Peter, these guys are going to become some of the most proficient people in the Bible, 13 of 27 books. What's he got to do? Well, he gets Barnabas, and he gets Silas, and he gets Timothy, and he gets these young up-and-coming followers of God, and he puts them under his wing, and he calls them a scribe, and he gives the word of God that's being given to him that he can no longer write through these individuals, and he helps us develop the entire system that we have today of discipleship. God used it once again. Why? Because he's allowing all situations to demonstrate. Romans 8, 28, if all things work together, okay, then he has to know how all things are working. But, you know, Lord, that's just not, this doesn't work for me. Um, I don't really do well with pain. And so what I would ask, Lord, is I'm going to go in, and I'm going to have this thing, and I would pray that you would kind of minimize the pain. Hey, that's a normal prayer. It really is. Minimize the pain. I get that. But what happens in your pain? I uh, recently had an opportunity to experience some bonus pain in my life. I'm going to tell you something. When you experience bonus pain and you don't take it out on the people in that room, because the nurses and the doctors are trying to help you, when you don't make it their fault and their problem that you're in pain, something weird happens. You know what happens? You blow their mind. Right? I had a recent opportunity where things weren't going my way. It happens with me. I'm that guy who has weird things happen. And my nurse was a little nervous because I was at a hospital that day that was a training hospital. And so there was like 18 people in my room, a little bit more than I'm comfortable with by 17 or 16. Okay. And I wasn't feeling so well. The needle wasn't in correctly and I knew it wasn't in correctly. And I get needles all the time. So I'm pretty familiar with how they're supposed to feel. High and pinchy needles are not going to work. And eventually I was stressed enough that I popped it. I popped it out of my and that doesn't work good, too, when it's live. You know, it creates a fire hose situation and stuff happening. But it also creates in that little nurse that did that situation a panic, right? That I failed you as a nurse. Now, my daughter's a nurse, and I can tell you this. I failed you as a nurse. When you're in the room and, and the doctors are all looking like, who put that? You could really torch somebody for that, right? It's okay. I tell them it's okay. Put another one in here. I got another one here. We'll just start over again. And you give them a way out. As I was struggling through my pain and struggling through my whole thing, I was really grateful my daughter was there. I was really grateful there to remind myself, you know, people are watching you in your best of your best, but they're watching you even closer in your worst of your worst. They want to see, oh, is he going to release the beast on us, right? Pastor Schmaster, you know what I'm saying? It's like, what will this guy do if we run him up the flagpole? And really put it on him. And I had to make peace with myself. You know, you cut me off in my car, depends on who's in the car. No, it doesn't depend. I get frustrated when I get cut off. I don't like being cut off. This week on 18th, driving to go get some chips and salsa, minding my own business, an individual who's definitely new to town thought every stop sign from left to right was a four way. And dead pulled out in front of me at 35 miles an hour. Just dead straight pulled out in front of me. As I slammed on my brakes, because I've got a sense of this town and how people drive, I'm 14 inches from the car looking at him in the steering wheel, and he's like, what? And I'm like, there's no stop sign, what? What do you mean, what? What? What are you doing, bro? What? <laughs> so, so dude drives away, and he's still saying what? And I look over, and then the other thing, the guy's watching the whole thing. I'm still sitting in the middle of the road now. I'm not moving, and I'm just like, Lord, 
thank you for protecting myself from myself. You know, when I go head towards chips and salsa, I shut off my brain. I want my chips and salsa, you know. But thank you for protecting me. And as I'm taking this moment to bet, this other guy is going crazy. Get out of the road. Let's go. What, you've never been hit before? Come on, let's go. And I'm like, time out, bro. Whoa. So I just pull forward and pull the curb, and I'm just like, you know what? What is going on in the world? What, what are they going to see in me? What if he finds out later on that I'm the pastor at the church, right? The, right? They're watching. Your kids are watching. Be careful the first words you hear your kids, your grandkids say. They're listening. They're observing. And everything you think and say and do that nobody matters, it matters to him. Because if all things are going to work together, then even your infirmities, even your sickness, even your highs and lows. One final point. The end of the story isn't just the end of the story. Remember I told you it's a day in the life of the pastor? Because this is the word of God, and because this is an ongoing kind of account of the word of God, I'm just blown away by the fact that in verse 43 it ends with, and Peter stayed in Joppa for many days, not a day or an hour, with a tanner named Simon. Does that sound like anything significant to you, or is that just like the end of the story and, and move on down the road? That, this is loaded. This is loaded. You know what a tanner is? Not, not in Costa Mesa. A tanner is someone that goes down and pours oil on themselves and thinks that the human body is designed to be Criscoed. And that's a tan. No. A tanner is a person that kills animals and then tans the skins. You know what that makes them in Jewish religion? Unclean. <laughs> the dude just raised someone from the dead. Walked 10 miles, healed somebody, did all these different things. He's totally taking care of his business for the Lord. And a tanner asks him to stay. I read this somewhere, so I wrote it down for you. Based on the principle that Jesus taught his disciples, the first house that's offered to you until you leave the town, Mark 6.10, is where you stay. But he's a tanner. He... I'm unclean by going into this house. Look what, look what I just did. Does it matter to the Lord? You're not unclean because of the house you're in. You're not unclean because of the food that goes in you. You're unclean because your mind tells you you're unclean. But there's none righteous, so you're already unclean. We're all unclean. But he stayed for more than a day. Why? It's the craziest part of the story. What we're going to find out in chapter 10 is an individual a Roman centurion named Cornelius is going to find out that he's there. And he's going to send two servants from his house to go find Peter. And Cornelius is going to find out that this house he's staying at is a devout Jewish man. And this Jewish man will be asked to come to Cornelius' house coming up. And when he gets to Cornelius' house, he's going to pray for salvation for Cornelius and his entire household. And the opportunity now for the Gentiles, including Roman centurions, Roman soldiers, the head of centurions, the head of a hundred-man group, is going to have an opportunity to hear about faith. Why? Because God is using all things, every day, all day, for the kingdom of God. And just because you and I don't see it, and just because you and I don't feel like somehow we're involved with it, and just because you and I feel like a lot of different things, but not a saint, doesn't mean that it's not true. You are a saint, because he said you're a saint. 
And the work that you're doing is significant. And even though you can't see the work, it's significant. But don't try to insert yourself in when the glory comes, like Peter said. You seriously think we had something to do with this? This is no reflection of us. This exclusive reflection of the person who can save and the person who can heal and the person who has the power over death and life. In the end, as the old saying is true, is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus a lunatic? Or is Jesus Lord? Because I can assure you one thing. He has the miraculous power over life and death. So what are you waiting for? You want to take the chance of you having the power over life and death? Or you want to just roll the dice of life and say whatever happens, happens, and I'll deal with it then? You're going to risk eternity with someone who's already been there? Knocked on eternity's door and said, no, not today. I'll get back to you. Because I have that power. I put time for you. Remember, Jesus, God, is now outside of time. Time has been set aside for us. We are living in time, okay? That's a parameter for us. That's not a parameter for them. They've been outside of time. They were, they will be, and always will be, right? We have now been given a very precious gift. It is called time. And it will run out. So whether it's this week, next week, or in 2,000 years, every generation in the Bible thought our generation was the one the Lord was going to come in. So us standing out in front of the building saying the sky is falling, the sky is not helping. The sky will fall when it was told to fall. And it's already been set in stone, and the sky knows when it's going to fall. Until then, every every bit of time is precious. Every opportunity to have a miracle or to have this hope, this great hope that's in Christ, is here and present today. So I say one final word to you. Who is your hope for the afterlife in? There is going to be an afterlife. You will live forever because your soul was designed to do that. Whether or not you understand it or comprehend it, I'm sorry to explain it to you this way. But the truth is, you have a soul and it will live forever. It will either live with its maker, who he intended in his house for you to be with him, or you will live outside of that. To be separated from God is the first definition of hell. Separation from hope, separation from light, separation from love. You can add all the other biblical parameters in there, weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth, okay? darkness you can add all the other adjectives and verbs that you want but the reality is a separated life from god is hell don't chance it don't chance it i appreciate you making the effort to be here today and i know between the rain and all there's always going to be another opportunity to say something else i could do today but church there's no better place you can be than in the house of the lord with the encouragement of god's word to say hey look Right now, you're going to go back into the world, and maybe during the storm, someone's going to call you panicked, and the sky is going to be falling, and you're going to be like, I got it. Now I know I'm here because the sky is not falling for me, right? I ain't no chicken little. The sky will fall when the Lord tells it to fall, but I'm going to go to that person's house right now, and I'm going to be the encouragement that God has designed me to be right now for that individual. I pray that in advance as I go to the Lord. I'll call the band back up here. Father God, Today is such an incredible reminder that even though we don't know what the weather is, even though we don't know whether the sun's going to come up or down tomorrow, we hope, we definitely hope. I know I'm always grateful to see the sun rise, but the truth is that it's been set in time where it won't. 
And there will become a time and a place where you are the sun. And you are all things. And until that moment comes, Father, there's this great hope we have that the miracle of salvation that has taken place in my life and every individual in here who has made that profession of faith in their lives, that we can share that blessed hope with those around us. Father, I know there's songs about it, there's words about it, there's lots of really incredible things trying to remind us every day, but there's also the thief who's out there stealing our hope, trying to tell us like he did back in 2000, oh, this is not just a regular time change, this is the big one, and you better go out and get ready because it's going to be flood and famine and people in grocery stores and fighting, and then we just get ourselves all worked up, and then we wake up the next morning and nothing happened. But we don't know what to do with all those emotions and feelings and all the things that we prepped ourselves for. And he's like, I told you. Who, by worrying, has added one day? Do you not see the sparrows flying so carefree around you? They neither store up or lay up treasures for themselves. How much more precious are you, church, than a sparrow? Our Father has everything we need, and he has put it all in place so that we can make the most of life regardless of what it gives us. And I pray this morning that if you're hearing this, that you would realize there is no other name by which you can be saved than Jesus Christ, born in a manger of the virgin birth, died, buried, and rose again. He is, he was, and he shall be. I pray today that you would make a consideration to make Jesus your Savior. Amen.
We thank you that you're a relentless God. Amen. We're so glad you were all here this day. Blessings on you for being here. We're praying traveling mercies and safeties for everybody as you go home. We want to see you all back here next week. God bless you all, and may you have a great week.